0: What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism, and the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or Surge. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe that white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December of 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. So I'm skipping this week's lectionary selections and offering you a word about Deborah from Judges 4 and 5. We have some amazing episodes about John's chapter 6, conversation about bread from Nicola and I in 2018 and from Margaret just a few weeks ago. So if you're looking for some inspiration about John 6, which is this week's lectionary, check the transcript and social media because we'll post those episodes there. I'm going with Deborah, which we actually read on the 25th Sunday of Pentecost in year A. Right now we're in year B. If there are enough weeks in the lectionary year, which there aren't always um, for the weeks of Pentecost, which means we don't always get this story, the story of Deborah, to choose from. Anyway, I'm going with Deborah as I was invited to preach this past Sunday, and this was the text. And given what's going on right now with the news about climate change, with the Indigenous resistance against Enbridge's line three, and the fires and the floods and the out-of-ordinary heat, well, it seemed like a good word to offer you, too. If you're not familiar with Deborah's story, you'll find it in Judges 4 and 5. You can pause here and go read it if you like. It's a little too long to read in its entirety, so here's a quick summary. Deborah is a judge for the people of Israel. They are oppressed and threatened by Canaan and the general Sisera, so Deborah calls together her people to fight in self-defense against the massively overarmed Canaanite army. Amazingly, the Israelites win, with the victory strike coming when another woman, Jael, drives a tent peg through Sisera's skull. Fun story. Chapter 4 is the narrative version, and Chapter 5 is the victory song, retelling the story. And the song is thought to be one of the oldest texts in the entire Bible. Deborah's story ends with this line, And the land had rest forty years. And the land had rest 40 years. What is the land that you know best? The land where you were born, perhaps? The land where you've lived longest, perhaps? What is the land that your bones know as home? What is that land's shape? The contours, the edges, the vistas? What are that land's smells, their changing scents over the seasons? How does the soil feel under your feet, under your fingernails? What grows there, thrives there, plants and animals and other beings? How do the water, the wind, the sun, the moon live and move and have their being? What does it feel like in your body to remember? to bring to mind the land where you have dwelled. And the land had rest, 40 years. The land my body knows as home is the land where the Osage Chickasaw and Quapaw peoples overlap, where piney forests and ancient mountains start reaching out, tumbling out into the Mississippi River Delta, Those places are currently called Monticello and Little Rock and the Ozarks and the Washita Mountains and the Arkansas River, all in a bounded area called Arkansas, where I was born, where generations of ancestors on my daddy's side were born. This is the land that nourished me from my earliest breaths, with the soft haze of humidity drenching my skin and easing my eyes. The smell of pine-needle compost scrubbing out my lungs. Water everywhere, rivers and creeks and bayous and puddles and ponds. The palette of landscape teaching me every color. Teaching me. The way I learned generosity and abundance from how the soil grows everything with abandon. More than enough corn and beans and tomatoes. And let me tell you, there are no better tomatoes than the ones grown in Monticello soil. More than enough. So much to share, the way the garden shares with you. The way the river kept me company on quiet sunrise mornings easing my loneliness. The way the forest offered us safety and respite when humans got too difficult, too harmful teaching me respect, too, to take seriously the threats of storms and tornadoes, the ice storms that uprooted a whole entire trees. The trees. The glorious trees. I have a scar on my arm, still, from falling out of a tree when I was in second grade. A gorgeous magnolia with her thick blooms bigger than my head. How else to get as close as you can to such beauty, than to climb right up into her lap. And the land had rest 40 years. As I mentioned, this line is the very last line of Deborah's story. After the generation of oppression, after the people crying out to God, after Deborah calling her forces into battle, a battle to defend themselves from their oppressors, the self-defense of a people in which women played a crucial role, after Giles' winning strike, after the victory song, then, and the land had rest, forty years. What does it mean for a land to rest? What would have to happen for that to be possible? In order to be able to wrestle with this question, we first need to reckon rightly with the story of Deborah and where it fits in the broader arc of the story being told or I might say stories because there are layers of stories layers of meaning making happening both in judges and in the narrator's long history that spans from Deuteronomy through Joshua Judges 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings this narrative arc covers the history history in quotes because well you'll see <laughs> from the end of the wilderness wandering after the people's liberation from Egypt to entering the promised land through the tense period of Judges, then kings beginning with David, the split of the kingdom after Solomon, the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrian Empire, and finally the destruction of the southern kingdom and Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire. This all matters. This all matters because, as black biblical scholar Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney says in her book Womanist Midrash, the collection Quote, the collection and compilation of these sacred stories is a response to the trauma experienced by the survivors. In the face of the defeat of the nation, dismantling the monarchy, burning of Jerusalem, and raising of the temple. These tragedies and their attendant horror provide the impulse. And now these are my words. They provide the impulse for the layers of meaning-making we find evident across the Hebrew Bible— where ancient and less ancient tales are stitched together with recent history to answer the questions brought on by trauma. We talked about that some last summer um, on this podcast. You might remember. We can recognize these layers in Deborah's story, for example, which was crafted during and after the conquest of Israel by Babylon. Centuries after Deborah's judgeship was supposed to have happened and how the crafters include in her story this victory song that is even more ancient, perhaps the oldest text we have in the Bible. We might think of it sort of like this, an oppressed people trying to make sense of the violence of the economic and political life of late-stage capitalism in the 21st century in the United States. By crafting a story about the indigenous Pueblo people kicking Spain out of northern New Mexico in August of 1680. In fact, August 10th, 1680, the day that I'm actually recording this. Or a story about Nat Turner's rebellion against enslavers in August of 1831. And them singing and dancing to a victory song their people had composed 500 years earlier for a completely different occasion. Something like that. Layers of stories trying to make sense of trauma, of violence enacted on the bodies of humans, the bodies of creatures, the bodies of sacred sites and land. Why did this happen? Why does this keep happening? What does it take to be safe, to be free? Is God with us or not? And the land had rest 40 years. What we can tell from archaeology and eventual oral and written history is that the people who eventually became ancient Israel were people indigenous to the land, mostly in small communitarian villages that engaged in agriculture and herding livestock. They held bonds of relationship across territory to defend one another, but they were not an empire. They had really no political power, nothing that would compare with the might of Egypt, say, or Canaan, or the Philistines, all of whom were empires and kingdoms that demanded tribute from the people they conquered. Tribute means the imperial elite amassed their wealth by demanding portions of goods from the people, the people they've conquered and are now exploiting. Portions of harvests and of goods such as oil and textiles, so food and medicine and clothing, necessities, carried off to line some other king's coffers. The people of the land, the Hebrews, they resisted this. They fought back. Many scholars think these ancient victory songs, like this one from Deborah or Miriam's at the Red Sea, are reflecting successful resistance against oppression and exploitation by these empires, these kingdoms. Miriam's song celebrates resistance against Egypt. And in Deborah's song, if you were to read it in in chapter 5, it says, The peasantry prospered. They grew fat on plunder. Which is describing a Robin Hood tactic of robbing the empire's military and merchant caravans and so preventing violence against their people and redistributing the wealth back to the people it was stolen from to begin with. You can imagine that in trying to make sense of the destruction of your people by yet another empire, this one called Babylon, you would call on those old resistance traditions that describe victory over imperial violence. You want, need that reminder that this oppression will end that your people have power, agency, that God will fight for you, through you, that you have the right to live free, maybe even by any means necessary, and that even the land has the right to rest for 40 years, or 80, or centuries. these stories. Whenever it says Egypt or Canaan, for example, we should also at the same time be thinking Assyria and Babylon. The trouble is, and this is part of reckoning rightly with Deborah and the broader story, and yes, I'm about to add more layers to all this. The trouble is, the trouble is the broader story itself. We're supposed to be understanding these tales of Deborah, of the earlier judges, because the later judges are terrible, actually, these earlier judges and their victories, as resistance victories against empire. Except we don't. We read them as stories of victories of God's powerful imperial armies against the people of the land, against the infidels, the uncivilized, the savage, the unfaithful, the unchristian. We read them that way, in part because we're not taught this complexity of what's going on. And also because, ironically, when we're told the liberated from Egypt people finally get to enter the Promised Land, God tells them to slaughter everyone who's already there. God tells them, essentially, to commit genocide. God tells them, essentially, to act just like an empire, even though the whole entire wandering in the wilderness, getting tablet after tablet of instructions was precisely about not becoming just like Egypt, just like an empire, until they actually enter the land and commit slaughter on God's orders. There is no peeling back of layers that is going to make that fact not be true. We can try to excuse it, and this happens in my head. It happened when I worked on this. We can try to excuse it by saying, well, that never actually happened. The people were never actually enslaved in Egypt, so they never returned and conquered. Well, they're just trying to tell a story about faithfulness to God and the consequences of following empire's ways. Well, Canaan is an empire, not the indigenous people of the land. It's really about defending themselves from exploitation. All of these things, these layers are true. They're true. And they don't change the fact that also God orders genocide. And the reason Deborah is still having to fight off Canaanites is because according to the narrative, the Israelites didn't wipe everyone out in the first go-round. And all of these layers don't change the fact that once Christianity became the religion of empire, Christianity became God's army, and Canaan became the people of the land. Canaan became the continent of Turtle Island and her people. Osage scholar Robert Warrior points out that Puritan preachers often called indigenous peoples Canaanites, thus legitimizing their destruction as the U.S. became its own colonizing empire. It's the same logic that led to the Doctrine of Discovery and Manifest Destiny, to Indian boarding schools, to the Sand Creek Massacre, and to the Enbridge pipelines being dug today under the rice fields of the Anishinaabe regardless of whatever a treaty might say. And the land had rest. Forty years. There's no way to make these stories nice, to make them fit a nice template of resistance that in no way offends. There's no way to peel back the layers like too many coats and knitted sweaters until we find some comfortable nugget underneath it all. What I want to suggest is we have to sit down with the whole thing resistance, genocide, faithfulness, empires, trauma, victory, destruction, all of it. Maybe we're cradled up in that magnolia tree in my backyard, or maybe we're sitting under the palm tree with Deborah. And we just sit there and ask it all what does it mean for a land? to rest, what would have to happen for that to be possible? And we might notice that in all the arc of this narrative, the land only gets to rest three times. Three times when the people are living aligned with God's vision. Which is not a vision of empire, but of communal, non-hierarchical relationships of mutuality and care for everyone's well-being. Sitting with this tree, holding this messiness of story in our hands, we might notice these three restful alignments and decide that genocide of any sort does not belong in that vision whatever meaning the story crafters were trying to make as their people were being decimated by Babylon, we don't have to give our assent to all their conclusions. We can hold their trauma with compassion, and we can choose a different way. We can tell God that our faithfulness cannot include genocide, and we can hold our tradition accountable for the harm done in God's name. Sitting with this tree, we can center what indigenous people are telling us, what the land, the land themselves, is telling us. And the land had rest 40 years. What does it mean for a land to rest? What would have to happen for that to be possible? For the land to rest, we must reckon rightly with Deborah and with the whole of the story in which she finds herself. For the land to rest, we must tell the truth about all the layers that are happening here. For the land to rest, we must recognize that telling the story only as an imperial victory against the savage has meant that we, we who are of European descent, have lost our connection to land. And I don't mean exactly that we don't find nature beautiful, but that we have lost our relationship to the land themselves. We have forgotten not how to be in nature exactly, but that we are of nature made of the stuff of the earth sharing divine breath with trees and animals, moon pulling the tides in our blood, reciprocating the land's bountiful gifts to us by offering them gifts in return. We have forgotten how to love the land, and that the land loves us back. I think that's why we get this line. In judges, even if only three times, like seeds dropped in aching soil, and the land had rest 40 years. The land themselves is its own layer in this story, asserting their voice to say, Enough. Enough with the fighting, enough with the empires, come back to the land. Listen to the land. Because When the land rests, there is no war. When the land rests, there is no colonization. When the land rests, there is no genocide. When the land rests, there is no exploitation. When the land rests, the people are safe and thrive. When the land rests, diversity is honored. When the land rests... There is enough food. When the land rests, there is beauty. When the land rests, the people rest too. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so. Amen. I'm inviting you to support the Indigenous-led resistance to the Line 3 pipeline. Green Faith and Minnesota Interfaith Power & Light have solidarity actions for folks of faith. and You can also follow Honor the Earth, established by Winona LaDuke, for updates and action alerts as well. We'll have links in the transcript as well as on our social media, including a link to Minnesota Interfaith Power & Light's website with action alerts and other Indigenous-led groups to follow. Thanks, as always, for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth, this good land. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And we'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, S-U-R-G.org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And as always, a huge thanks to our editor, Max Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Rev. Anne Dunlap.